1: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Ronika Jacobs and you found my podcast, Strive for More, Your Best Life Now. While there are hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there, you've taken the time out to listen to this one. So for that, I would like to say thank you. So without any further delay, let's get to it. Let's strive for more. (laughs)
2: guest, Stephanie Raffalock, is helping women strive for more as they transition through the midlife years. She has penned numerous articles for many notable publications, such as the Aspen Times, Nexus Magazine, 60andMe.com, and others. Stephanie is the author of a delightful little book on aging. She wants women to understand and recognize that life is not over at the age of 50. She hopes that through her work, women will change the way they see themselves and the way others see them. In this episode, she will discuss how aging is really a benefit and not a hazard and how past life experiences can truly propel you forward. Hi, Stephanie. Welcome. Thank you so much for being a guest on my show. How are you?
0: I am good, and I am, was so ready to be with you
2: today. Thank you so much for inviting me. No, the pleasure is all mine. I was doing research for your episode and I was like wow not only is she inspiring women and then she's a blogger and she's done all these great travels I was like she's just truly phenomenal and amazing this is I was like I can't wait to meet her. (laughs) Thank you. All right so can you share with the listeners your journey of becoming a blogger?
0: I majored in writing and poetics when I was in college And I had my eyes set on being a novelist and a a contributor to various publications. And then life intervened. And suddenly I had a marriage and a mortgage and all the responsibilities that go with a young life. When I got a little bit older and I was able to step back from work to a certain degree, I wanted to pick up where I left off with my writing, and I wasn't quite sure how to do it. Now, I went to a very interesting school. I went to a place called Naropa, which is a Buddhist-inspired university in Boulder, Colorado. And part of my training at Naropa as a writer was to give back to the community the talent, skill, or ability that I was getting in school. So I did a like a community service class. And in that class, I went out into the community and I taught groups of people that might not otherwise have access to taking a writing class. So when I decided in my late 50s that I wanted to go back to writing, I figured the best place for me to start would be to go back into community service. So I had a friend that was teaching at the Golden I think it was Golden County Detention Center for Women. And through her connections, I was able to set up a class there and work with incarcerated women teaching creative writing. But in order to teach creative writing at that time in my life, I had to have I had to be able to walk the talk, put it that way. So I started a blog. And I got up every morning and I formed the same kind of discipline that I'd had when I was in college. And I wrote for an hour and a half, two hours every morning. And then once a week, I would drive into Golden and I would... Teach my creative writing class, and so that's where my writing chops really began. It didn't begin when I think it would, although I think that I gained a lot of experience and insight in the years when I wasn't writing regularly. And you know, there are those plans that we
2: make, and then there's the plans the way they turn out, right? Absolutely, I understand that. Being a writer myself, and then also my mother is a published author. And so you understand that when I ask you this next question. So as a writer, you know, you have so many different books and, and thoughts in your head and, and concepts that you, you know, possibly want to write about in stories. So when you wrote your first book, A Delightful Little Book on Aging, like what made that book be the first book you were going to write?
0: I'm afraid that was a happy accident. I had written a novel two years before that that garnered me a really good agent in New York. And I went through the process of a year of my agent taking my book out to various publishers. And at the end of that year, I had collected 35 rejections. And I was a little disheartened. And there's something about failure after 50 that feels different than failure when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, and you think you have, you know, so much time stretched in front of you. And so I said to a, a friend that I was doing some work with, he said, I just, I don't know, maybe I'll just do a compilation piece, just something. I feel like if I stop, I'm going to give up. I just feel like I have to do something. And she agreed with me. She thought a compilation piece of some of the articles and blog posts that I had written over the years about aging would be nice. And I said, Yeah, I, I just want to write a delightful little book on aging. So that's where the title came from and that's where the book came from. And it's a it's a small coffee table book that's Insights and musings and stories and essays about the aging process. I think it's more difficult for women than it is for men to hit a certain age and find their value and their worth the same way they did when they were in their twenties
2: and thirties,
0: but now at the other end of things.
2: No, I can understand that as a woman and as a mother, as a professional, and just it's just as a person. <laughs> I can definitely tell you I've had these experiences and I've had these failures and I can say that as I get older, some failures don't really seem like failures and I start learning from them and they, you know, I use them kind of as a springboard. But then other times I feel like, gosh, you know, I knew better. (laughs) So, how can women, you say women can use their life experiences to, to propel them forward. So what do you mean by that?
0: Well, I mean, you sort of touched upon it in, in what you just said, and, and that is that success, most success, is built on the back of failure. That failure isn't a sense of losing. I, I sort of hate that whole winner-loser thing. It's just that you need to correct your course, And so most success is built on the back of failure. That's the first thing to recognize. The second thing to recognize is none of us knows how much time we have, whether we're 75 or we're 25. 25 25-year-olds die young sometimes. Sometimes 75-year-olds live till 95. So I think what's important is that we hang on to our dream and not let us let ourselves be swayed by the number of years that we've racked up. And let the experience of life move you forward. That now at, I will be 69 next year, so now at this age, I have life experience that I couldn't have possibly had the psychological insight or the spiritual insight at 25 that I do at this age, so those kinds of insights, those hard-won wisdoms, those are the things that push us forward and expand us to stand fully and thrive in the light of that third chapter. I love it. Wow, 69, you don't look
2: at that. That's awesome. That is awesome. Well, you know, speaking of numbers, you know, they have that saying, age is is just a number. And so when you Mm -hmm. hear that, what kind of speaks to you when you hear that saying that age is just a number?
0: Well, It's yes and no. It's a yes and no answer to is age just a number. (laughs) On the one regard, it is just a number. You know, I I feel in my heart the way that I did when I was 18 years old or 28 years old. I don't feel like this heaviness of, of being later in life. I don't feel a heaviness of being 69. So it's always a little bit of a surprise to me when I walk by a mirror and go, oh, Nope, that really is 69. So in one regard, the number doesn't mean anything. In another regard, the number means everything, but everything in a positive sense, not in a negative sense. And in a positive sense, like, would any of us ever have questioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, this marvelous legal mind who was such an advocate for social justice, as well as the justice of the court no one would have questioned her skill or ability at her age no one would have dared and so in her case she had this long life behind her that taught her all those things that she could then learn as a supreme or that she could then use as a supreme court justice and so age isn't just a number as you get up there. It's a wisdom to be embraced. It has the potential of wisdom to be embraced for most of us. And, it's something that we should hold as a sacred rite and noble passage rather than something to be feared. And I know there's a lot of things to fear about age. You know, we we lose a kind of physical beauty and a kind of physical prowess, but there's a deeper beauty that grows out of us and there's a more of a, um, let's say, a spiritual prowess one is more content with contemplating life, reflecting upon life in older years than you are in your younger years and its and it's certainly more appropriate in one's older years so yes, in some ways, age is just a number because inside of yourself you just kind of feel the same all the time, and age is not just a number because there are gifts that come with with aging and getting older that we should all learn to recognize and, and value and let inform us.
2: Wow. And you mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yes, one of the most phenomenal and great legal minds in our history. I, I will have to agree with you with that, and it's very sad of a pastor a couple of months ago. So in speaking of that, I've noticed that with women, that emotions, like our emotions are challenged more so than mental capacity why do you think that is
0: well a couple of things i think that women are the the containers for emotion we we hold the tears of the culture one of the funny quirks that i've noticed about getting older is that i weep much more easily I don't try to hold back tears, and I don't apologize for my tears anymore. There's a news program that I watch in the afternoon sometimes with uh, Nicole Wallace, and she does the last 10 minutes of her show are about people who have died from coronavirus. And for that 10 minutes that I happen to be watching, I let myself weep because I feel like those people that died of coronavirus deserve our our memory they deserve our tears they deserve our collective mourning and as i said i I no longer apologize for that you know how women say oh excuse me excuse me when they start to cry instead of recognizing that we hold it's one of our sacred rights to hold the emotions of a culture and i think because there are certain strictures around that as to what's socially appropriate or what's not, that we sometimes shame ourselves for that or we have judgment about each other for that instead of recognizing that it's a good thing to have someone in the culture that holds the emotions. We don't want to lose our ability to be empathic or compassionate or weep over the sorrows and the harshnesses of life. We want to keep those things alive. And sometimes when you see a woman crying, it stimulates so that a man can cry too. It's permission for others to share their grief in that way. And grief is a great transformative force that also pushes us forward. So rather than running from it, we need to
2: walk right into it. Powerful. I love that you said that we are the containers of emotions. Wow, that was that's powerful, Stephanie. Very, very powerful. Just
0: wanted to mention one thing about the emotions. I watched the vice presidential debate, and I noticed that after the debate, there was a lot of commentary about Kamala Harris's, you know, did she smile too much? Did she not smile and, you know, did she make faces? Did she maybe not have enough expression. And, you know, she was really scrutinized in a way that a man would not be scrutinized. And I still think that we're coming to terms with the power and wonder of what it is to be a woman in this culture. And it's something that's scary sometimes to women, and it's something that's definitely scary
2: to men. I agree with you. I do remember... There were several memes that came out, yes, about her faces on, on social media and the fact that did she hold back on her attitude or did she have too much attitude? I know um, right. President Trump commented that she once again was a nasty woman, <laughs> You know, it was all about demeanor and attitude, most definitely. Well, you know, at this point, it doesn't matter. We're a month out from the election, right? And Biden and Harris had a wonderful victory. And so now Kamala Harris is our newly elected vice president of the United States. But as we've been talking about middle-aged women, she's, in fact, a middle-aged woman. So what work do you think needs to be done to shift the perspective perspective of middle-aged women? Because it seems like now being a middle-aged woman, you're, it, it doesn't mean that you're old. It's like you're really in the middle and thick and spice of your life. Yes.
0: I think it's probably one of the more creative times in a woman's life. And especially if she's on the other side of motherhood and the other side of menopause. You know, menopause is kind of a I look at it as a spiritual bridge that leads to that third chapter, and it's just such a juicy, creative time. First of all, I think women, we have to start seeing ourselves differently. We have to stop seeing ourselves as being used up or irrelevant or insignificant or invisible. If we are having those feelings, my, my gentle suggestion is that's a call that's coming from inside the house. And so we have to take care of our own house first and say, I am not those things, and I am in a transition time, because that's what midlife is. It's transitioning to the elder, wiser years. That's first of all. Second of all, I think that we can't be afraid to seize upon those educational moments, what Barack Obama used to call teachable moments, that it's all right for us to correct someone now i thought that vice president harris did that beautifully when during those debates when she shot she saw that teachable moment and she said to then vice president pence excuse me i'm talking now there wasn't anything mean about that There wasn't anything off about that. It was simply a statement of fact, and it was a correction instead of retreating into a kind of coy little girl, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, which is kind of cute when you're, you know, 15, but not when you're... 50, and about to become the second in line for leader of the free world. So I think it's those two things that we, we deal with our own attitudes about ourselves and how we see ourselves, and then we deal with how society sees us and seize upon those teachable moments. Stand in the light of your truth. Be proud. Speak your truth, and don't be shy about that. And if you stumble and fall and lurch a few times learning to do that, you probably did that when you learned other stuff, too. Wow,
2: that's wonderful. One of the things that I have always challenged people on, especially people who, who have daughters, and, you know, they tell their daughters, you know, you can grow up to be whatever you want to be, but then we're hesitant to employ women and leadership. And so I always question that, like you tell your daughter, do you really tell your daughter that? But do you really believe that, you know? Because if you're not going to trust that a woman can lead the country, then how are you able to tell your daughter that she can grow up to be whatever she wants to be, right?
0: Right. And I think that part of that, too, is, is acknowledging our own feminist history. You know, we have a collective feminist history that we can trace back through the decades and find Susan B. Anthony and Gloria Steinem and all the great things that happened along the way. But we have a personal feminist history that if we begin to examine the roles in our own family, we see that our great-grandmother, our grandmother, our mothers paved a price or paved a way and, and paid a price. And we will do that too. As much as we want to handle, you know, pass that torch, to our daughters, we may not pass it with the full confidence in ourselves like that which you just described. So I think it's good for all of us to to trace our, our feminist history a little bit. I have a story that I like to tell about my mom. She was pretty much a single mom for all intents and purposes when she was raising me. And she had a job at a local sporting goods store. They had like two or three sporting goods stores. It was in the day before chain stores. And she was a, she worked in the collections department. And she'd been there about three years. And one day they got her an assistant. And it was a guy. And After the guy had been there about six months, and she was very happy to have someone help her with her work, she discovered that her assistant, who had only been there for six months, and she'd been there for several years, was making more money than she was. Now, this is in the 60s, and she went to her boss, and and she said, why is he making more money than I am? And her boss said, well, Cleo, that was my mother's name, Cleo, Cleo, he has a you know a family to take care of and my mother said yeah so do I and so she did the only thing the only action that was really open to her in the 1960s and that was she quit her job in protest that was really all that was available to her And I remember her telling me the story, and even at 11 years old, it's like, I got it. Men and women are treated differently. And yet, I never forgot the story as I got older because I didn't fault her for it, but I found courage in it, and I found inspiration in it. It was like, wow, you were the sole breadwinner for us, and yet, you quit your job. Because you had to have some mechanism to make a statement. So she paved a way and paid a price. And that's part of my personal feminist history. So I think all women have those stories in their family. And we would do well to either have a grandparent, a grandmother, or a mother tell us those stories so that we can take them and hold them in our hearts, too. It becomes part of our legacy then, too, and part of what we pass on to our daughters.
2: No, I couldn't agree with you more. My grandmother, I think, and I I don't think, I know she is definitely responsible for making me the woman that I am today. I mean, I can remember watching, and I mean, and as an African-American woman, she purchased a home. In, in the 60s on her own. Her father would not co-sign for her, and she was able to go to the bank, talk to the bank, and then she convinced, I guess, the, you know, the loan officer or whoever it was at the bank. And he was a white man. But I guess they trusted her enough because she was an educator. She was co- college educated. She was a teacher. And she, some kind of way, she convinced her. she was divorced at that particular time. In some kind of way, I guess she convinced the bank to allow her to purchase a home. And, you know, that's not un- What year was right? that? I'm not exactly sure what year exactly that it was, but early 60s because I know my mother was born. I think my grandmother remarried maybe around 64 or so. So it had to have been around, like, 61 or 62. So you know the laws of the country at that time, and I can't even say
0: that they were laws, really. It was like, let's just say the rule of thumb was that you didn't grant credit to a woman unless she had the signature of a male relative on the document. And it wasn't until 1974 that the Equal Credit Act was Passed. So your grandmother was way ahead of her time, and she must no, have been absolutely. a smooth talker. Yeah,
2: right. And you know what? And what she used to tell me to this day that the gentleman at the bank—I mean, anything that she needed to know legal wise, bank money wise—you know, financial matters—that was a person that she could she trusted between him and his wife. And she went to her, to both of them, became really great friends with them over the years. And they, you know, kind of helped her. Build her credit, just build a financial profile. I mean, so gee, even not just aside from being a woman, but just being an African American woman, you know. And I've watched my grandmother own multiple businesses, you know, own businesses and then sell them. And I didn't know at the time, you know, what that meant to start a business and then sell it because I always kind of was like, well, why are you selling it? if <laughs> you wanted to have a business, but right, right. Of course, I understand it now, but, I mean, just watching her and work in the community, work with NAACP, work with her sorority, I mean, she's just a phenomenal woman. And now here I am at 40, and I do 9 million different things, and I think I honestly got it from her. Is so that a She is not. She is not. She passed away in 2017, and I miss her dearly. I'll bet. What an influence. What an amazing influence. yeah. 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 I have to ask you this. So as women live longer and start families later, do you think it is some sort of evolution or a revolution? Wow, that's a really good question. I think it's kind of a Darwinian moment
0: <laughs> that women are experiencing. All right. I would have to, I would have to say evolution because Women's worth for a long, long time was, was limited to those, those mother years, those years that you could produce children, and that's changing all around us. You, you don't have to look too far to see that, you know, I think it was in 2018 in the midterms, more women over the age of 50 ran for office at a local, state, and national level than ever before in our history. And so I think that that women are are starting to recognize that it's like, "You know what I can have a career, and if that means you know putting off childbearing until I 'm in my thirties as opposed to in my twenties, then I want to you know I have that choice, and women are taking that choice for themselves, but I think that that part of it is having children later, and then I think that part of it is seeing ourselves differently and seeing ourselves with greater strength as we get into our late 40s, 50s, 60s, that, you know, life isn't over because you're beyond childbearing years, that life, in fact, is, you know, creative and new again.
2: No, that's awesome. Well, then, you know, on the flip side, so then – the women who become empty nesters, I've heard that sometimes they feel lost once there are no children at home to take care of because they feel like that that was their identity, was as a parent. And and some of these women were professional women, right? Not even just women who were stay-at-home moms. They just kind of like, I'm a mom and that's, you know that was a part of who they were. Why do you think that this happens, that women just kind of get lost in their children and then you know once the children are gone they just kind of figure they just kind of feel like what am i supposed to do now well i think that people can get we're all identified
0: you know o- overly identified with our work with our kids to a certain degree you know that we see that as our identity we don't see ourselves as individual sovereign beings you know shutting out on new frontier to create that, that that comes later and i also think that's something that can happen with men that you know men give up careers and retire at 65 and then go oh my gosh now what because you've identified for so long with being a banker or a doctor or a teacher or something so now what and it, it truly is an identity crisis so i think that for for women the first step is to just recognize that you are not defined by your children. You know, your, your children are a gift that you gave to the world and the world gave to you, and, but they are, they're not who you are. Sure. So that would be the first step. And then the second step is to learn to sit quietly with yourself and start asking the question, what do I want to do? What if, you know, a lot of people leave things behind once they get married and they start having kids and a career, you know, it's like responsibility kicks in. You know, we all want to be responsible human beings. And right. as a result, we, we cast aside that, that love of music that we had or that love of art that we had or the sense of doing community activism that, you know, we thought we were going to do in our younger years. And those things can be reclaimed once the kids are gone once the career has ended or morphed into something else. I know a couple of women that have morphed their careers from one of them worked at a state home for kids doing psychology, and she is now a full-blown activist, and she loves it. So I think it's recognizing it within ourselves first that, you know, we we are not our work, we are not our children, we are not the things we have acquired in life. We're a soul. And then if that's so, as the Zen saying goes, how shall we proceed? You know, what is it that you want? What will bring you happiness in your life? What would you like to try? It doesn't matter if you stick with it or not. You know, try it and see if you like it. What would you like to reclaim? Is it your music, your art, your writing, maybe that stack of books? You know, people talk about that stack of books that they they want to read once they're done mothering so right. or they're done when they're
2: retiring, you know, and it's like, well, dive in. Mine is just a bunch of titles that I've purchased on my, through audible credits. <laughs> oh. <just> <laughs> yep. I can relate okay. to that. That's I can totally crazy, relate. Right. That's how we moved along. <laughs> right. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for your time. Oh, my gosh. And you, when, once you, you know, talk about our souls. you are a beautiful, wonderful soul. Thank you so much for you know being a guest on my show and and spending a little time with me and my listeners. You are truly phenomenal. I have one last question what's the okay. best piece of what's the best piece of advice you have ever been given? All right.
0: you know my mother gave me a piece of advice when I was in my 40s, and I had asked her, do you have any regrets about your life? And she said, well, I wish I would have left my dancing shoes on a little bit longer. And I hold that dear to my heart. I will tell you that last year, before all this COVID stuff happened, my husband's 50th high school reunion came up. And we did something we had always talked about doing but never had the courage to do, and that is we signed up for dancing lessons. And I
1: oh, think wow. I
0: want to leave my, I want to leave my dancing shoes on for a lot longer. And even if it's just dancing in the living room, sometimes I go out and I dance in my yard. I don't know if my neighbors can see me or not, but <laughs>
2: who cares? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you. Can you do me a favor? Can you let everyone know how they can purchase a copy of your book? And as a matter of fact, you have a new book coming out soon. So yeah. can you kinda kinda share a little information about that? And then also how anyone can get in touch with you if they would like for you to write an article or or anything for their site. You got it. Okay.
0: Well, first of all, amazon.com is the easiest because they deliver and my first book is called A Delightful Little Book on Aging and it's available on Amazon. It's available in hardback, on Kindle and also on Audible. So, if you've got extra Audible credits, <laughs> you can listen to the book. My second book, which is called Creatrix Rising, Unlocking the Power of Midlife Women, will be released in August of 2021, August 24th to be exact. exact. And that will also be available on Amazon. And hopefully, we will have the audible recordings done by then. My website is stephanieraffalock.com. And you can, there's a whole little thing on the toolbar, where to contact me, where to contact my publicist. I have an author's email, so I'm easy to find if you're looking for guest spots or guest speakers or podcasts or whatnot. I enjoy interacting with other women, and I feel like I'm here to support other women. So that's what I have to
2: say. Well, Stephanie, you are amazing. I wish you nothing but blessings and abundance to you and your family and your future, Please take care and continue to strive for more. Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure, a
0: true pleasure to be with you today.
1: If you are enjoying this podcast, please leave me a review on iTunes or Google or any of your favorite podcast players like share, tell someone about strive for more podcast. I really appreciate you sharing this journey with me and listening to each and every episode. I cannot thank you enough. Continue to strive for more and live your best life now. See you in the next episode.